Welcome to another guest host edition of the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder at Majority. Today, the guest host is my pal, Jake Goodman, famously the first ever chief creative officer and co-head of CAA Marketing, which he spun out to become Observatory in 2018 and subsequently sold to Stagwell before stepping away last year. In Jay's combined 16 years at CAA and Observatory, he racked up four Cannes Grand Prix in four different categories, including the first ever Entertainment Lion, four Emmy wins, the first and second ever brand films accepted to Sundance, and he was the driving force in the creation of Nike's new film and TV studio, Waffle Iron Entertainment. But before all that, Jay is a proud offspring of Wyden Kennedy, where he worked in the 90s and where he met his friend and mentor, today's guest, the legendary Janet Champ. Her face is etched on the Mount Rushmore Wyden Kennedy creative greats. Throughout the 90s, she pioneered a new way of marketing to women with her iconic Nike women's fitness campaigns that inspired and rewired generations of women across the world. So much so that today, there's a permanent display at Nike headquarters paying homage to Janet's greatest hits. And it's no wonder Janet's career actually helped inspire the Peggy Olsen character in Mad Men. In light of all this, it feels almost trite to list Janet's awards. Just know she's won them all. Her prolific career continues on today with work for clients like Apple, Airbnb, Under Armour, and the nonprofit causes that are closest to her heart. This is Jay Goodman and Janet Champ talking to themselves. But first, listen to these words from the late, great Dan Wyden about one of his favorite mentees. There was a woman, Janet Champ, working with Charlotte Moore in our agency, and these two creative people started talking from their heart, from their personal experience about things publicly. They brought themselves to this discussion of what it means to be a woman in today's world and a woman trying to find sense in the world and empowerment. They just put it all out there. It was very, very personal. I believe it was even a picture of Janet's mother that was in the ad. I was speaking at the University of Oregon and there was this woman who said, did you do that insert for the women that talked about the women? Oh my God, I tore that out, handed that to my daughter three weeks ago and said, that's what I was trying to tell you. If you let me play. If you let me play sports. I would like myself more. I'll have more self-confidence. If you let me play sports. If you let me play. If you let me play. I'll be 60% less likely to get breast cancer. I will suffer less depression. If you let me play sports. I will be more likely to leave a man who beats me. If you let me play. I'll be less likely to get pregnant before I want to. I will learn. I will learn what it means to be strong. To be strong. If you let me play. Play sports. If you let me play sports. Hi, Janet. Hi, Jay Goodman. It has been way too long since we've seen each other. I don't, I'm not even sure when the last time was. Probably the anniversary at, at Wyden, maybe. Must have been the anniversary 30th? of Wyden because, yeah, that would have been maybe 30. Because for reasons I suspect we'll get into at some point, we missed you at uh, at least the large Dan and Dave celebration but my assumption is that you made it to one of the smaller ones yes yeah good yes i did you gave me a word that i had to look up and you said everybody has to look up uh when it came to your widening kennedy origin story and the word was apocryphal uh which is spelled really weird um and so i did look it up and it's the the story that's told even if untrue um and 
the story as I heard it, and I think everybody else did, um, was Janet Champ was working as a receptionist and Dan Wyden essentially walked by and you made your case to him that you should be a writer. And that assignment led to, we'll talk about what the ad was in a moment, but you know, one of the greatest ads of all time being your first Nike ad. Uh, and then of course you and some of your partners being the voice of Nike women's for a generation. But it turns out there's more to that story. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, and then we'll move off origin story and get into your work. But but I'd love to know a little more than the apocryphal story. Well, thank you. And I do love the word apocryphal. Um, one of my 19 majors in college was um, was comparative uh, theology. So I learned apocryphal when I was 18. So there you go. Um, I always wanted to be a writer. I, I wish for a red typewriter when I was three or four. Um, and I, I always wanted to tell stories. And so when I was young, I was always the writer in high school and junior high and college. And everybody thought I was going to write the great American novel and they're still holding their breath. Um, but I, I didn't, the idea of going into advertising with anathema to me, I would have rather done anything than going to being, you know, advertising because it was about selling things. I needed a job. I literally had $11. I was sleeping on my ex-roommate's couch. There was a job opening at Widen Kennedy called administrative assistant, which is a fancy word for secretary. I went in, I took it. The partner at that time didn't tell me that I would also be answering the phone with other girls. Only the girls rotating two hours a day at the front desk while we did our other jobs. So it was fine. I did it. I loved that it was a small agency and they had humorous black and white photos of everybody in the agency at that time on the wall. And it just seemed like a kind of a fun place to work. So I thought I'll be here for a year, then I'll leave. I'll have maybe $12 in my pocket. And after about a year there, I started thinking, oh, I could do this in, in my head. Um, Dan called me Bambi because whenever I talked to him, my eyes were big and I didn't say much, which my husband would laugh at because he never knew a moment when I wasn't talking. So anyway, so I had been a vegetarian since I was 15 and I saw there was a national meat out day in Portland. And I asked a good friend of mine if he would art direct an idea I had. And I, I wrote this poster and Matt helped me lay it out. And I stole a picture of a cow from the, from the library and I photocopied it on David Kennedy's photocopier. And we, I mean, we and we put 100 or 200 copies around that city everywhere. And the headline was, you're not the only one dying for a hamburger. And back then, even way back then, we knew all these facts about how eating animals destroys the world. So Ken Wyden, Dan's brother, saw it, knew it was mine, showed it to Dan in the ICU when Bonnie was sick. I didn't want him to. I, I said, isn't this bad timing? And Ken said, no, we'll give him something to do. So the next day, Dan called me in and said, hey, Bambi, I like what you did. I think it's great. And I said, mm-hmm. And he said, so would you like to try your hand at being a copywriter? And I was like, sure. So I did uh, what they called ad kits, where you had to write like five word headlines for, for Nike shoes or three words. Two words would have been the best thing because they were like, little thing, yes. And I did that and, and answered the phones. Um, and then we had this, and then that led to my first commercial. 
So should we talk about or so so first of all, um there's so much in there from <laughs> the circumstance and the circumstances, Dan's circumstances, the circumstance of you not being the assistant or the secretary who, you know, Dan happened to walk by and drop the Nike women's brief on your desk, which <laughs> seems to be the the legend. And look, if you've got to have a legend, there are worse ones. But mm -hmm. um, I, for what it's worth, I like the real story better. And I suspect others will, too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing it. Um, so should we talk about what? Oh, that. Oh, what my first dad was. Yeah. Oh, what my first dad was. I know. How lucky. Right. Um, the whole agency was pitching. Nike had invented this shoe with air. It was air technology. And it was the brand new big deal. And he put Hoffman, Susan Hoffman, and me. And then my friend Christy Roberts was in the art department. We all three worked on it in the beginning. And Susan and I went to lunch at um, the Dakota. There was a great restaurant in Portland. We all went there all the time. Let's go to the Dakota. And we were sitting there and there was a picture behind me. And Susan's sitting here and Susan is reading out loud. You can only, you can hear her voice across the room reading the brief. And the very first line of the brief was this Nike air technology is a real revolution in running. So she's reading it to me. And then she says, what's that picture behind you? And I turned around and I said, oh, that's the that's the Dakota. This is what the restaurant's named after. That's the Dakota. And that's where John and Yoko lived. Um, and she said, oh. And I said, yeah. She said, wasn't there a Beatles song about revolution? And I said, yeah, it's called Revolution. And John wrote it. And she said, well, huh. Well, what if I did something like that? Um, and Susan's not naive. But at that point, we were just like, Okay, so we went back to the agency, and I had just seen the day before a black and white um, Barney's ad. One of the producers was, was looking through it, and I was in the coffee room looking through the hole in the wall at the video, and it was black and white, and it was handheld, it was really cool, and it was by this married couple. And I said, Susan, have you seen this, this spot? And she said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So I showed it to her, and she said, that's great, I love that. So we have the music and then we have what it looks like. Let's go tell them. So we we had him come in the conference room and we told him our idea. And David Kennedy holding his coffee cup like this was like, the Beatles. Ugh. And Dan said something like, well, why don't you just ask for Mozart? And Susan jumped on the chair and jumped on the table because what is she, two foot two, right? And she trying <laughs> to make an impression and she's like, What's wrong with the Beatles? And he said, we're never going to get the Beatles. And she said, well, how do you know? Has anybody ever tried? And they went, ah, we got to look at some other work. So they left. And I think that was a Tuesday. So they left. They saw everybody else's work. Then they came. They called us into Dan's office on Friday. David was still holding his coffee cup like this. And Dan was all frowny. And, and we came in and they said, all right, that's a stupid idea, but we can't get it out of our head. So go on. Go show it. Go show the Beatles. So we did. Yoko loved it. We got sued by by the rest of the Beatles. And then Yoko talked to them individually and said, it's selling athletics. It's selling sports. John would love it. Please drop the lawsuit. And they did. I have never heard that aspect of the story that Yoko Ono 
widely reviled by some for breaking up, quote unquote, breaking up Beatles, by the way, widely admired by many for her artistry and many other things. So, but, you know, but I tend to fall on the ladder for what it's worth, <laughs> uh, but never heard that she was the reason that the lawsuit was dropped. Uh-huh. She was. Wow. I mean, and, and, and I love the fact that they were, you know, I love the fact that they were like, oh my God, no, you know, we can't sell out. Because, of course, it was the first time that they'd ever been used. But I also love the fact that she, of course, had the balls to say, guys, you know, it was John's song. Um, he would love it. I know it's a Beatles song, but please, please, please. And, and as far as I know, as far as I remember, she showed them the rough cut or she showed them the Barney's video that inspired it or something. But it was wonderful that they dropped it. And, and uh, it was shocking. And then uh, the day after... We shot it or the day out. Yeah. During editing, Dan and David called me into Dan's office and said, we're going to take the junior off of your junior copywriter title. I'd say you're that one. And I, I'm positive I cried, but I don't know if I cried in front of them or I walked back to my room as I've always called my office. Cause what we were there 24 seven. That we were. I went to my room and I think I just, you know, shut the door and thought, wow, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Seems like it was the best thing that happened to a lot of people. Um, and who shot that? Oh, I am so, I am so bad. I had their names on my tongue. A few, hopefully I'll think of it again. Because well, they're just yes. wonderful. You know, they were just wonderful. I can look it up. Um, so that Thank was you. not, that was not Fincher then. Your, your relationship with Fincher came in later. Fincher came later with the women's fitness when they gave us enough money to actually do TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When they gave you enough money to actually do TV, meaning not TV with this wonderful married couple and a song that could not have been an expensive lawsuit or no lawsuit. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. No, I'm sorry. I meant for women's sports and fitness because oh, when right. we started gotcha. women's sports and fitness, we could only do print. Gotcha. Um, let's so. keep going on on you know you mentioned 24 7 and calling it your room so i want to get into some individual ads um down the line because it starts to paint a picture of your influence a pretty big picture um but you once said widen in the 90s was the paris in the 20s of advertising when i mentioned that to you earlier prior you said i don't even remember saying that yet i must have repeated that conservatively a hundred times since because like many lines that you've just dashed off it encapsulated that era in a way that i think anybody who was there would agree with and not from an egotistical point of view as if we were fitzgerald and hemingway and gertrude stein pumping out art that would last hundreds of years um but that the creative energy coming out of the number of humans and the way we all, and let's, you know, be honest here, I was a nerd sitting in the corner who only got hired because you guys convinced Microsoft to become a client. But the amount of pressure we all put on ourselves because we were at Wyden and Kennedy, and then the amount of pressure that people like me, or I can only speak for myself, that I put on myself knowing that there was Janet and Charlotte and Susan and John and Glenn and Ned and Linda and Vince and Jerry and Rick, who I really want to talk about, and Steve Sandoz and Bob and Michael and, 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 and. It was, you know, it, it wasn't 
Mount Rushmore. I don't know what it was because there were so many and every single person was as good or better than the other Jeff Kling and Jimmy Smith. And, you know, every other every single person there was capable of doing something that would affect global popular culture in a matter of moments. And yet there we were all together and we all really liked each other. In fact, I would say loved each other and still do witness 2,500 of us going back to Portland, 500 of whom were from these Deacon years. Imagine that 20 years after, Evie said this to me recently when describing this to a group of people in Sundance who really barely even knew what Wyden Kennedy was, let alone what it was like to be there in the 90s. And Evie said, so imagine 20 years after having a job, the people who were responsible for giving you that job both pass away. And you feel so strongly about the way that job and the people behind it affected your life that you make a pilgrimage, which is what my wife called it, a pilgrimage back there to pay that place and those people and those two individuals in particular the honor that they deserved. Like, Almost 500 people out of 2,500 were from the 90s in the Deacon. Name another job. You think people at McKinsey showed up? I don't even know who Mr. McKinsey was, but I bet they didn't. <laughs> I bet they didn't. Bet so they didn't. anyway, you know, you give give us some time with it's widened in the 90s, the Deacon years. Well, it was, you know, one of the um, I wrote to Dan and David both personally on my Instagram account. I read it. Um, but one of the things was, and all of a sudden I was I was trying to explain what it was like. And there was, it, it was, it all started with Dan and Dave. It, it, everything started with Dan and Dave, the culture, the attitude, the family is a business. It's a family, it's a business. No, it's not. It's a business. It's a family. It, everything started with them and it all funneled down. And you can say that about lots of places, but you can't say that, that there's, I don't believe there's any other ad agency on this planet um, that was more of a university. It was more of a think tank. That was more of a of a um, a culture wrapped inside an enigma, wrapped inside um, wanting to do better than you've ever done, but also being up against the best other you know tennis players, right? You know, I mean, you always want to play tennis against somebody who was better than you. Um, there were a lot of people in that agency back in the nineties who were told at one point in their lives, you're the smartest person in the room. Um, and I think everybody wanted to be either the funniest person in the room or the smartest or, or the most ballsy or whatever it was, but to have the freedom to do, to have the freedom to jump on a table and say, my God, you have to buy the Beatles or to have the freedom to say, I'm going to, I'm going to do a 12 page insert because Nike just told me my inserts are too long. And I want to make it longer. I mean, so it was an amazing. And also Dan and David said really early on that Wyden's culture was really a reflection of Nike's culture. At that time, Nike started small, independent. Um, everybody was a runner or they played basketball. They worked out, which infused what they did. You know, they believed in what they made. And they. it was part and parcel of who that place was. And so at, at Wyden, it was part and parcel that, that we were going to be as creative as possible because Dan and David detested conventional advertising, Jay. Right? I mean, they they didn't like jingles. They had come from conventional advertising and they didn't want to do it anymore. I mean, 
Dan White was the guy that shortly after I got there, I think six months after I got there, eight months after I got there, he came up with just do it as a tagline because Nike had asked for a, a tagline. <clears throat> just do it came from Gary Gilmore's last words before he was executed. Do it. He tried that. David said to him, they were alone, and David said, that, that's good, Wyden. I think it needs another word, <laughs> which I love because it could be, <laughs> where should that word go? And he's like, I have no idea. I just think it, I just think it needs something else. And everybody at the agency was like, yeah, that's okay. That's all right. But so they did a campaign to prove you just do it no matter what, no matter how old you are, no matter how tired you are. And that all infused us. And I think because they thought it was a, a college of learning and creativity and culture, because Nike trusted White, they trusted Dan and David so much that they trusted us, that the agency was left to flourish in this way that, I, that, I mean, it was part of the golden era. And I know that it was golden back with Mad Men. And um, I know that supposedly I'm one of the people who was an influence for Peggy Olson. I but I that. like this. I, that's I thought about it when I watched it, for sure. Well, I really wanted the octopus painting, and I never got it from any of my friends. But I... I like to think that Peggy Olson continued on and she got to be in the 90s where when breakthrough work and and doing things that people said was impossible or or, or crazy or what are you what are you selling? You're not even selling anything could be could come out all over like with Goodby and all these other places on you know, Fallon and the Martin Agency. If people were looking at White and Kennedy and shy it. And saying, I want to beat that. So it was amazing. And because of Dan and David, and because of Dan and David believing in all of us and, and allowing us to fail. But I mean, also, I walked into my office, my room, one morning, and there was a little tiny piece of paper stuck on my computer, my keyboard. And it said, don't disappoint me. And I was like, and I looked at it. And I recognized the handwriting. So I marched on down to Dan's office and I opened his door and I said, don't disappoint you about what? And he's sitting in his little, his little spiral chair and he turns and looks at me and he says, about anything. And I closed the door and walked back to my room. Yeah, and probably wrote the next greatest ad of all time. <laughs> uh, I want to talk, uh, let, let's go deeper on that trust between Nike and Wyden because it's it's a really important part of the cocktail that I think um, somehow the rest of the industry seems to either dismiss or take for granted. And the number of meetings I've been in in the years since being at Wyden and Kennedy were usually not the CMO, but somebody a layer below when being presented something and then I compare it to Nike, it's immediately dismissed, oh, that's just Nike, to which I then go off on any number of tirades that have to do with, you can't dismiss the best marketer in the world and the best advertising marketer partnership ever as, oh, that's just. What you have to do is find a way to emulate it, which is why I used it as a point of reference. And the single most important aspect of that is trust. We're not trying to trick any of our clients into doing something we think is cool. We're trying to convince them 
to do something that will sell more of the thing they've asked us to help them sell. And Nike knows that as innate. And I didn't get this comparison from myself or anybody that you or I worked with at Wide. And I got it from a woman named Erin Alvo that I worked with at Riney. And when describing that to her, what she said to me is, oh, yeah, I have a word for that. It's called the Mediterranean family way of working. And she said, in a Mediterranean family, go to their house for dinner. It looks like everybody's fighting because they are fighting. But there's so much trust in that family unit that they can fight. They can fight about whose cousin married or didn't marry somebody they should have married or not married or which football team should or shouldn't have won. And if you're outside the window looking in, you think these people hate each other because they're fighting with so much passion. But that's not hate. That's love. That's trust. And then I think she added this to the story, or I did afterward, um, which is, but if the, say, Eastern European family down the street in my 1950s Mediterranean family neighborhood, the Eastern European family down the street comes to that window and throws a rock through it in the middle of that, then that Mediterranean family stops fighting with each other, bands together and goes and kicks the crap out of them. <laughs> and the reason they can kick the crap out of them, right, is because they're a unit bonded by that level of love and trust. This ends my weird analogy. Thank you, Aaron Alvo. But but there are, I've tried to come up with so many other analogies for what it really meant to be, and even just to witness the relationship between Nike and its partners. And they they have it in a special way with Wyden for sure. But I can tell you, having spent the last few years creating Waffle Line Entertainment with and for them, they looked me in the eye and said, we're letting you create our entertainment division. DJ, to my face, we're letting you do this, letting you do this because we trust you, because we know you, we like you, and we trust you, and you know us, and you like us, and you trust us. That was the whole conversation. The rest was contractual. So now I'm going to stop talking again, but can you talk about that? Because you were forming it in what would now be called the formative years. You know, what was interesting is in the beginning, when I got there, it was always shoe ads. It was always apparel ads. It was selling a thing. It was selling a product. And it, even on the first page, if there was, you know, like there was a Bo Jackson cross training thing, there'd be Bo on the front wearing Nike. And then there'd be the next page of the print ad would be a close up of the shoes. And then the next page would be, a female athlete as an afterthought on the very back because Nike was making its bread and, and butter off of the male athletes and it was a very male company and white and, and advertising are very male dominated also. So it was always about selling a thing and it was humorous and it was tough and it was strong and everything else and it was kind of cultural. But as it went on, as the trust developed and the, and the, the conversation, you know, like advertising is a conversation, right? In the beginning, it's a cup of coffee across the fence. Or it's, hey, how you doing? This is my shoe. As you get to know people, it's it becomes, we're not really selling the things. We're selling the brand. We're, we're actually about loyalty because you're going to stay with a brand you love or a brand that gets you or a brand that understands why people run in the rain a lot longer than you're going to stay with somebody just because they made something that you like. And so as everything developed and, and 
they began to see like the agency grew. And of course, almost everybody in the agency got to work on the biggest client, which was making. There was so much trust and so much love and things were going well that the client just opened up and said, you know, even if you guys fail, you you put your heart, your soul, your passion into it. So go ahead, you know, try it again. And that just kept, kept on developing, Jay. And it just kept on developing the fact that, and Phil would say it all the time, you know, I mean, he believed in, in complete loyalty to the ad agency. He believed in being really loyal to the people who bought his products. And the agency believed in being so loyal back. And I think that's a key message for for what advertising should be. It shouldn't always sell a thing. There's so much more important aspects to a brand or a company that you either love or you don't, right? Absolutely. Why not bring that to the forefront? It seems that it's funny. They, it's not funny. It's serious. Somehow Nike just understands upper funnel marketing to sound like the instructor at UCLA that I am sometimes, but it seems like they just understand the upper funnel better than everybody else and understand that that requires a certain level of trust with your agency partner in order to strike people emotionally in a way that resonates in exactly the way you just described. I think they do. I think they always have, even though people have come and gone from Nike, Nike's changed and Nike's enormous and everything else. They still put it out. So I'm like, suddenly there'll be something on, on TV I'll see, and it will just startle me and it'll be a brand new Nike ad. Um, and after all these years and all the competition and everything else that, that goes on, it's just so wonderful to see something come out of absolute thin air and make an impression on people, especially an impression on people who think nothing of, of advertising, that they don't think that advertising could be or should be creative. And yet they'll sit around the dinner table as a Mediterranean family, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. and talk about what they just saw and, and how much it, it really moved them. Yeah, when not to digress too far into entertainment, but that's that's actually I think one of my greatest motivating factors is that when you and I and all those great people were there in the '90s, ads did matter a bit more, if only because we had to watch them pre-TiVo, uh, and it was not a stretch to say that if you were at a bar or in a living room watching a game, and a Nike ad came on one would be more likely to lean in and watch the ad than the game, depending on how much of a fan they were of either one. But when you know a lot of those Nike ads came on, people would say, Shh, it's a Nike ad. And unfortunately now, whether it's DVR'd past it um, or you're getting up to go you know, get a sandwich or go to the bathroom or whatever it is, somehow ads have fallen way down, I think, in the public perception. Yet I also believe that you're right, that Nike transcends them all. But that was a lot of the motivation for, well, if they're less likely to watch our ads, then maybe we need to start making the entertainment. And as mm. we took the proposition to Hollywood, we got exactly zero resistance because everybody in Hollywood seemed to already understand innately, even if they hadn't intellectualized it prior to the meeting, that Nike is the world's greatest sports storyteller. Mm. They happen to do it 
with a motivation to sell shoes and apparel around the world. But those two things are true simultaneously, and they are consistently over 40 years, thanks in large part to you and a handful of other people, the world's greatest sports storyteller. Not brand storyteller, although they're that too, sports storyteller. Now I want to get into you because as I walked into the Jerry Rice building to, uh, as I guess they'd already said yes, because that happened in Sebco. So it was maybe like the first real meeting for Waffle Line Entertainment. I'm waiting for the elevator and Jerry Rice. And to my left is one of those glass cases, uh, display case. Usually it's got paraphernalia from the athlete whose building it is. Well, that display case was actually 180 degrees behind me, and it had some cool Jerry Rice stuff, and I'm a 49ers fan, so that was cool. But I spent almost no time there because the one to my left waiting for the elevators was called the Era of a Champ. And there was your picture and your ads highlighted in a – the hair in my arms just stood up. And I just thought to myself, like, what company – back to the relationship between – Nike and Wyden and Kennedy, let alone between Nike and you, what company 20 plus years later would put up a display case full of ad of ads and give the credit, and you're going to do something right now, which is give credit to 20 other people, but give the credit to the one human they felt most responsible for the advertising in that era and called it the era of a champ. I didn't even know that. I, good title. I had no idea <laughs> that they did that. Um, wow. Um, okay, so you want to know how it started, right? Really fast. Why? Sure, how? I want to know all of it. Go. Okay, so uh, let's see. Um, at the agency, working on various things. I don't know what year it was because I don't remember years. But sometime early on, maybe 87, 86, I don't know. Charlotte and I, Charlotte Moore, are working on something together, or we're just sitting in my room talking. And Dan opens up the door and says, in Dan's own in unbelievable way, you guys are girls. Again, with girls. And we looked up and we both went, uh-huh. And he said, great. You're the new team on Nike Women's Fitness. And he shuts the door and walks away. And Charlotte and I were like, I think she said good because it turns out that the male copywriter who had been working on Nike women's fitness had just done a TV spot for cross training with an athlete from Nike. His name is Jim Griswold. And she goes through all the things you do in cross training. And at the very end, she said, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Oh, and it wouldn't hurt to stop eating like a pig. Well, in the cut. Not only did it make it in the cut, and every, Jim thought it was hysterical. Dan and David said, "Sure." It went through Nike. Nike approved it. It went on air. Um, back then, all the women's work was running during soap operas and, and morning TV. By the way, um, and they got letters and phone calls of people yeah, screaming thanks. at them. And so that happened, and at the same time, they were Nike was getting destroyed by, by Reebok with their shoes and their apparel because Nike women's shoes were made on a male laugh and then smushed up. Reebok was actually making, you know, they owned the women's 
business, especially with aerobics. So those two things happen simultaneously. Charlotte and I are girls, so they give us the work. And then what happened is we did a couple, we did, because again, it was just print, that all the media was just print. So we did um, a four page insert, you know, and it, and everything back then, they showed us where all the media was going to be placed and it, everything was in cosmopolitan and glamour and teen glamour and little tiny glamour and whatever they were called and a couple of the running magazines, but lots of the women's magazines. So the, the first ads we did didn't really, they got attention, people liked them, but I don't even remember what they were. I just know we went to a meeting and it was in the fall and they wanted us to do another insert or maybe three or four different pages in these magazines. And it was going to be, you know, in the big September issues. And they had a little bit more money because things had gone well. People had, had had liked the work. So Charlotte came into my room one day and said, why don't you write the story of a girl's life, of a woman's life? And I said, sure, that's easy. And she goes, yeah, I think you should do that. And I was like, all right. So I sat down and I started, I just started writing. And of course the first line was, you were born a daughter because you were back then. And then I kept writing and she was busy looking for pictures throughout, you know, stealing people's art books, probably Rick's up and down the hall and finding pictures of young girls, young women, older women, and we did an eight-page insert. And I actually had written, you'll like this, I had written You Were Born a Daughter, and I went all the way to the end of her life. And so Charlotte- I know, I know the ad. Actually, I turned my phone off because it was buzzing, but I but I just to, you know, to, to make an admission here, the last thing I did before logging on to, to speak to you today was read that ad in its entirety. Oh. oh, well, originally it was three times longer because I actually took her to the end of her life because, you know- I do what's right. So Charlotte cut it in half because she said, oh, my God, right here where it says you became a significant other, you become significant to yourself. Yeah. She said, that's a killer ending. We're going to end it there. And I was like, well, that makes more sense. Well, we laid it out. And, of course, we didn't put shoes in it or apparel because we just weren't even thinking about it. And we went in and showed it to the eight men. And I think I think it was a female. I can't remember. I think it was a female. Um, ad manager person mm. and they, they each got their own copy. I read it out loud. I was a stutterer for most of my life is terrible. So every time I presented to Nike, I was petrified that I would stutter. Wow. So because of that, I would be really emotional. And every time I read anything to anybody, they thought I'm Nike used all the guys and the women used to say, Janet must really love the work because she's almost in tears. And I was thinking, oh, I'm almost in tears because I'm afraid I'm going to stutter. So I, I read it out loud and they loved it. They didn't change a word. They absolutely loved it. All they said was, if you could put some apparel or shoes in it, we'd really appreciate it. <laughs> Did so you? we ran it and it got, and Jay, I don't, it got like a hundred thousand. I don't even know how many, let's say a hundred thousand phone calls and, and letters and nobody was angry. Everybody loved it. And it was perforated so people could tear it out if they wanted yeah. to. Although, although there were two people in that room when we presented it that said that looked at us and said 
you know, people don't really like to read and people aren't going to read a really long ad. And Dan and David were there with us. And Dan was like, people love to read. That's why there's books. And then whoever said this thing said, yeah, but I mean, you know, Dan is a good writer and everything, but it's kind of long. It's eight pages. I don't think people are going to read that. And Dan said, well, why don't we just find out? So when we, they got 100,000 letters, we had another meeting and, you know, we were celebrating and everything. And they came back and they said, you can write it as long as you want. We don't care what you do. So uh, then Charlotte and I actually cut everything down. And I think the next campaign was the Maryland one you brought up. Right. And that was each one was just one page that had a thesis, it was a spread, and then you turn it and there's another spread, and that's where the sport went. That's where the athletics went. We wanted to keep it, you know, here's statistics lie with Marilyn Monroe, which right. by the way, that was Marilyn's very favorite picture, she said to many people, and I had it in my office. And when Charlotte was looking around for what we could write to it and write about. And we really wanted to hit Glamour Magazine and Cosmopolitan and you got to look good for a man. And, and if you're going to lose weight, do it for a man. We wanted to hit them right where they live. Those ads were created to go against the media that women were being funneled. So she saw the Maryland ad. She goes, oh, right to this, right to this. Okay, great. Well, I also had a picture of four generations of my family on the wall and it was my great grandmother grandmother my mother and my sister who at the time had the measles and looked miserable and charlotte said oh my god what if we wrote to this what if we wrote like you know you're always she said you're always saying something about you don't have to have be your dna you're not you know no one is destined to be you know what their dna says anybody can do anything and i said okay so she cut the she cropped it so it was just my mom and my sister and so that made it into one of the ads. You do not have to be your mother. One of the mm. highlights of my life, Jay, is that I was afraid my mother might take it the wrong way. She loved it. She wore the T-shirt oh. for years with pride. That's pretty good. This is me. Um, and then we did one. This is a picture of a 40-year-old. This is a picture of a 40-year-old woman. It was a little uh, redheaded girl with braids. And then the last one was... Um, no, 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 no. You're always being told no, just say yes. We What's did that one? and that got another hundred thousand calls and letters and people were like I I can't even remember which ad it was, but I got this somehow somebody made it through on my phones. I was always telling when I didn't want any more calls. I was so busy trying to work. A guy I picked up the phone and it was this guy. I think she said to me, You have to talk to him and he's in tears. I was like, okay. So I picked up the phone and it was this man and he said, My wife wanted to learn how to start to run and get all emotional. Um, but she didn't want to do it outside. She was too embarrassed to let anybody see her. So she started to run around her dining room table. Oh my goodness. And she made a groove oh, in the carpet. Oh, and um sorry. Oh, he was calling to say thank you. Anyway, go ahead. You got me too. That is the, but that's it. And there are millions better than my opening story. Yeah, it was amazing. And then, and then he said, and then she lost 20 pounds. And I kept telling her, she always has been amazing to me, but she lost 20 pounds. And then she went out and bought some apparel and some shoes. And now she's out on the road running. She dropped to five miles a day. And I just want you to know. Wow. And pre internet figured out. Who called Nike 
asked who the agency was. I mean, think that in that time, it must have taken them hours to navigate yes, it was a, it, to get insane. to you. I know. And then like 13-year-old girls writing handwritten, you know, 13-year-old girls who went to a school that didn't have a, a girls hockey team or a girls softball team and they wouldn't do it, writing a handwritten you know, letter saying, thank you so much. You know, um, I'm going to, I took your ad in and, and, and now they're thinking about it or now they're going to, you know, and now they're going to let us do it. And, and I mean, unbelievable stuff. And it, it was incredible. So Nike just kept saying, keep going. And then that's when they actually gave us, they said, let's do TV. And that's when the first time I got to work with Fincher was, um, we did some black and white ads with David and, and, um, and, uh, it, it, and they were phenomenal and, you know, and, and he's incredible and he made everything so much more beautiful and, and fabulous. And then I worked with him for, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years in a row, you know, on different things, but he brought so much to it. He brought humor, he brought sophistication, he brought sarcasm. Huh, really? <laughs> yeah. And, and he brought, you know, perfection and, and he really pushed us and, and, and um, it, it was wonderful because a partnership with a person like that just makes everything, uh, um, you know, more than you ever thought it could be. You know, so. Let's talk about partnership. Although when you rattled off the headlines, I do have a quick question, which is, was one of those, I feel like there was a card with Marilyn Monroe on it that on one side said, you are a princess and then had a copy. And on the other side said, you are not a princess. And had to, nope. So somehow, we know it's crazy. So for all the things you wrote, somehow I invented <laughs> in my head. And you know, I wonder now if I didn't attempt some exercise at some point in trying to channel that voice, by which I mean your voice and Charlotte's voice, and my attempt to learn how to be a writer and weasel my way into <laughs> anyway, the way that you immediately reacted with nope is it obviously wasn't very good either um, but <laughs> partnership. that's what partnership is you need people in your life to tell you when it's no good and move on yeah partnership so, is you know is truth and then we also did we work with david we did those ads that were oh you were so emotional which actually I wrote about Charlotte because Charlotte was because Dan was always telling her that because Charlotte would either get really angry in the room or she'd cry. And I love that about her because I would try to be that, you know, the, the stoic champ face. And Charlotte would just be like, I don't know why you don't like this. Or she'd be like, rah, 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 rah. so I I wrote, Oh, you were so emotional and I showed it to her. And she didn't realize it was about her until I told her like two years later. But, but she loved it. And then we did You Were Not a Goddess. And that's when the Wiccas came after us because the Wiccans were not happy. Mm -hmm. because, so we had to You're write them nice. back. Not all of them. <laughs> we just thought about it. And we said, we're sorry. We didn't mean anything against you. Um, and then a few others that were, and those were black and white ads. And they had they had nudity. And Nike let us do that. So wow. I know. To partnership, you know, at, at Dan and David's, celebration a few months ago um when phil spoke he said a lot of people say that without phil knight there'd be no dan wyden and i'm here to tell you that without dan wyden by which he meant everything created by him and david there would be no phil knight um and that's there was a partnership at that level but then par the partnerships cascade you know, the, the tree of partnerships, if we were to attempt to whiteboard it, we'd need a, you know, 50 by 50 foot 
whiteboard and you've had some of those great partnerships in multiple forms and you've mentioned a few of them charlotte fincher rick can we talk about those sure yeah yeah absolutely um yeah charlotte and i i think i think in totality i had seven years on women's fitness and sports and charlotte did the first three or three and a half with me and maybe Charlotte four. Moore, just for those. Yeah, Charlotte Moore, yeah. maybe four. And we still were together. I mean, you know, all these years later, you know, she, she didn't want to be pigeonholed or or labeled anymore as a women's art director or, you know, or creative. Um, and she lives in Milan now. And, and you know, Rick and I would go and visit every year, um, she and Roberto. And we know, like, the kids are like our goddaughters. They're fantastic. Um, and she married somebody in advertising also, um, from Wyden, Wyden and uh, wedding, Wyden and marriage. What, what's the term? Cause right, there's so many yes, yes. Well, like I said, it's very romantic, but also when you are in a place of work 24 seven, you tend to date the people that are with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, so we had a wonderful partnership and we still work together, Jay. I mean, we've done so many things over the years together and, um, I love her like a sister. You know, we would have some outrageous fights. If I was 10 minutes late getting coffee, she would let me have it. And then I'd make sure the next day I was 20 minutes late. (laughs) (laughs) We were like sisters and partners and best friends and we pushed each other and it was amazing. And um, we loved working with Fincher because he was, you know, and with everybody, with Pitka, with everybody that we had a chance to work with, amazing director. I mean, my God, we the best musicians, the best directors, the best editors, the best colorists, the best. So Gordon Weaver for, you know, she did the voiceover for the very first women's fitness campaign. Why not? I mean, it was, we were so fortunate and so, um, nothing was off limits. Nothing seemed like it was off bounds, you know? Um, and, uh, we just had a great partnership with Fincher. He pushed us so much. And then, um, when Charlotte, got off the work. Um, then I started working with some other people at the agency and that led to a very good TV spot down the road. And then Rick and I, of course, um, were called, I think Jeff Salis said we were the very first people that were openly, openly together and dated at the agency because it was mm-hmm. against the rules there. Um, nobody knew it was only against the rules because Dan had hired somebody who insisted that his wife was also hired ah. early on and it hadn't worked out, neither him nor her. Mm. So when they let them go, Dan was a little bit of an absolutionist, as you know, you know, yes. Dan was very, so because that didn't work out, he was like, no more wives, <laughs> no more husbands, none of you shall ever date again. And I remember we were, you know, we were out somewhere. He wasn't drinking, but he had stopped drinking. Yeah. David still was. They were sitting there with a beer next to me, and Dan's making this proclamation. And Fensky was there, and Jeff McCann, all these people. And I, I'm looking at him, and I said, "What do you mean people can't date at the agency?" He goes, "I, I separation of church and state." And I said, "Well, that's ridiculous. Everybody at the agency is seeing each other." He goes, "I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear about that." <laughs> so when Greg and I, you know, decided that, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Dan, when he found out that Rick and I were seeing each other. Um, he, uh, he called me into his office and he turned, he was very serious. He was dad serious. 
David was mom serious, but he wasn't there. And Dan, and Dan said, you, you and the question cannot see each other anymore. I, you have to break it off. I, I have a rule here and I don't want you influencing. It's like a contagion to other people. And I, I looked at him and I was 20, I was 29. And I looked at him and I said, well, we're not going to break it off because we're serious about each other. I mean, we're going to move in together. You know, this is serious. And he, he was just, woo. And he said, well, well, you, well, you just can't. I just told you, right? I just said okay. you can't. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but you're going to, I don't know what else to say. We're serious about each other. And that's the way it goes. And he said, well, if this persists, one of you is going to be leaving and it's not going to be Rick. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And I reminded him of that conversation so many times. That was my was next after, question. He, after he and? helped him pop and everything. And I told Rick later, and Rick was painstakingly, you know, he's such an artisan, such a craftsman. He was an art director, designer, my very best creative director after Dan and David. Um, great editor. It's like amazing. I, I would always show two or three things. It, no matter what I was working on, Santa Cancer or Coca-Cola or Nike, whatever, and I'd show him two or three things, and he'd always look at all of them, concepts or what, or, and he'd always pick the right one, this one, and then he'd leave the room and go finesse something with an exacto knife. So that happened, and um, I'm very happy to know that as soon as everybody knew we were openly dating, everybody else that was openly, I mean, how many marriages and relationships? A lot. Hundreds. There's a long list somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I've read it. Yeah. So, yay. <laughs> yay right. for not so, following rules, Dan. So, um, first of all, wow, never heard that story. Um, second of all, I'm going to get up in a second and shut the door because I hear somebody preparing food and I'm afraid the microphone's going to pick that up. Um, <laughs> but I think that might give us a moment um, because I, I want to, if it's okay with you, go deeper on Rick, who... Um, in a in a different version of the universe, a better version of the universe, I would have asked if I could interview Janet Champ and Rick McQuiston together. Um, the the love, the energy that the two of you shared, and I have this um, lasting image that should be kind of an inconsequential image because your relationship means so much to me, and Rick's work meant as much and means as much to Wyden Kennedy as as anybody else's, but. Um, that the the vision is actually post widen when you and Rick had come to help me and Jesse at you know dot com era. I got it in my head, you know, post leaving for rain. I'm gonna go to my Silicon Valley roots, and this dot com thing is for real. And you came in multiple times and saved our asses because Jesse and I did not know what we were doing, despite the great jobs that we managed to weasel our way into. Um, and the lasting image is. The two of you walking down the street, which must have been Battery, through Levi's Plaza, and you both had your wheelie bags, your your suitcases, and there was a, a bit of space between your shoulders as you were walking away. And the window of my office faced Levi's Plaza, and so I was just I was I was seeing this vignette whether I knew you or not, but I did know you. And then the space between your shoulders filled. You just kind of touched shoulders for a moment while you were walking with your wheelie bags to some hotel after writing some ads. And it just, it was a really warm moment 
witnessed from afar. But over the years, as I've come to know you both better and and know your relationship, I've placed so much meaning onto having, you know, had the the great fortune to have witnessed that small moment between you. Because I think for all the big moments, anyone who's been in a successful relationship knows that it's the small ones that matter. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's so sweet. That's so nice. I love Jesse. Jesse, we just love Jesse, by the way. He's such a great guy. Oh, I feel like half the reason you guys came, not more, if we were 50-50 <laughs> we partners, he was like 80% of the reason you guys said yes. <laughs> No, because we love Jake Goodman. Are you oh, kidding whatever. me? I loved you the moment I met you. Business I think I had to ask business. you what you did because I wasn't sure. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, what um, Michael Preve once said, uh, when we were, we, he, Dan, and I were walking in and Dan essentially said the same thing. Like, what do you do? And, <laughs> I, was like, and I was like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, you, I, you just told this ad and that ad and I'm the man. And baby. Michael goes, uh, Dan, when everybody leaves at night, Jay's in charge. <laughs> and, it, and it was and it was meant to be so cutting. But here's how that place like fucks with your mind in the best possible way is like, I was there a lot at one, two, three, four, five in the morning. So there were times when I felt like I might be the only person in the building. And I was like, fuck yeah, I am in charge when when everybody else leaves. And that <laughs> thing I wrote at, at 345, that's going to be the thing that says, I didn't even really get in the moment that he was completely cutting me down to size because that place had infused me with so much whatever belief in myself. But I don't want to talk about that. Um, but I, I was also attempting to both get us out of the too much of a of a deep emotional moment because I want to I want you yeah. really to spend some well, time talking can about. Can I say just I'm gonna, I'm one quick thing about Rick? Um, it, you know, uh, Rick and Hank Perlman were the ones who created uh, this is Sports Center. I know that. Please tell that story. I want to shut yeah, this door. Hang on one second. Yeah. So we're going to talk about. With you and Rick, you know, humility and notoriety and how those two things work against each other sometimes. But please tell, please tell the story sure of do. how Sports Center was created. Yeah, it was great. Um, he and Hank were put together on ESPN because they had just got, I, I think they had it for a few months or a year before they put them on it as a team. And Hank was away sh shooting. And as always with a partner, you, Normally, you say to each other, hey, you write down some ideas, I'll think of some ideas, and we'll show them to each other, and we'll scratch it out. And Rick's favorite movie, well, Rick had a thousand favorite movies, but one of his favorite movies was uh, This is Final Tap. Um, it was funnier than hell, black and white, behind the scenes, loved it. I, had watched, I watched it a dozen times with him. And that was like number three or four on his list of of potential concepts and Hank and of course a great partner always knows the right thing to circle and so Hank came back and said and had circled that and one other idea maybe two other ideas and said this is great I love this idea and so they started working on the behind the scenes in sports center black and white and um Hank was busy working on a tagline and um and Rick used to be a copywriter when he first started out in the business. So he was writing taglines too. And he was showing them to me. And I was like, yeah, those are pretty good. And Hank had a bunch of taglines. And then Hank came in and he was showing Rick all the lines. And Rick was like, yeah, those are, they're good. They're good. 
which one do you like? And Hank said, you know what I really think I like? This is Sports Center. Just this is Final Tap. So that's what they showed. And he will always be the person who won the first Emmy uh, ever given for a commercial. Those yeah. two guys. And we paraded around that city with those Emmys. Those things you are like heavy. to say that, that Rick has the only Emmy in the, in the house. He does. Damn it. So anyway, <laughs> so that's, I just wanted to give him credit where credit is due. Well, when people don't, the, the, those stories don't make it out. That's the, you know, the campaign of the decade in the 1990s. And yep. a lot of people get to take credit for a lot of great ads. Uh, Jesse Coulter, who we just talked about, had some of my personal favorites, but nobody gets that opportunity if Rick McQuiston and Hank Perlman don't walk into, I imagine, David and Dan's office and show them this is Final Tap and follow it with this is Sports Center. And yep. by the way, the campaign's back and some other agency gets to execute on it now. I feel right. like I just read exactly. it. And it changes shows. everything afterwards. It changes the culture. It changes ESPN. It changes what other people do for work. I mean, I don't think a lot of other, you know, for the, for the beer as I don't think a lot of other work at, at Whitney Kennedy would have happened. If you are, in, if something else doesn't show you that something is possible and opens up the doors and leads the way. No question. Can you, hmm, you just put like four competing thoughts into my head. Um, did you did you and Rick work as a team at White and Kennedy or only afterward? Um, we did work on a Coke. One of the best times we ever had. We worked together on um, a 15 second Footlocker ad, but we got to hire um, Barry Sonnenfeld. Barry Sonnenfeld always wanted to be a director, but but back then he was um, the cinematographer for, for the Coen Brothers. Right, Amazing, bad. right? So we got him. It was only 15 seconds, which is crazy. But we fell in love with Barry Sonnenfeld, and we got to be friends with him for years. He was the funniest, most wonderful, most humble, most amazing guy in the world. And um, so we got to work with him. But he, he said on the very first day, he said, all of a sudden looked at it. And later on, Kevin Smith, who we worked with, also said the same thing looked at us and said, are you two together? Because I had a strong rule, Jay, that I never wanted anybody to know we were married or we were partners in any way other than we're just each other. Rick didn't understand it, but I, as a woman, I really wanted that to be so. And both of them said at different times, are you guys together? And we were like, yeah, yeah, we are. And they said, what? how'd you know? And both of them said, because you have absolutely no sexual chemistry whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and Rick would always say something like, well, we have a lot of it when we're not in front of you. And I would say, that's because I don't want you guys to know. And then, of course, like Kevin said, well, I was really attracted to you until I found out you were married to Rick. And I said, he's smaller and shorter than you, so you could take him. <laughs> <laughs> But, and then, you know, so we worked together about 50% of the time, our entire careers. You know, I left in January 4th at 2 o'clock in 1999 from, from working at the agency and went freelance. Rick went freelance that June. Um, he mostly worked with Jerry, our best mm -hmm. our best man and one of our best friends, but Jerry Cronin. But 50% of the time we worked together and all, tons of the pro bono that we've done over the years and for, you know, against cancer. I was going to say for cancer, but it's against, against uh, cancer. And, and with Malala and a lot of other people we did together through the years. So, 
So let's um and now let's let's talk about post widen in a second, but um so let's hold that because there's a whole other chapter. And by the way, I'm totally not conscious of time and don't really care because this can be edited and um, I feel like in some ways we're just getting warmed up. Um, so you tell me if you have to be somewhere and, and Omid can uh, can decide if something needs to be edited. But um, when I first reached out to you, um, somewhat reluctantly, um, because I thought, yo, you won't want to do this. And this is well-trod territory and everybody knows the great Janet Champ did all these things. Um, so I, I, I said, gosh, would you ever consider doing a podcast with me, Janet, we have, I, you know, so admire you. I consider you a mentor. Obviously we're friends. Apparently I did my best to emulate your writing voice once or twice before. <laughs> um, and your response back was not the response I was expecting. First of all, it was an enthusiastic yes, but, but what it led to was a discussion between you and I that I'd love to replicate a little bit here about just the, the, equation between humility and notoriety and part of what i'd said to you is i know you're humble and that's why maybe the story hasn't been out there as much as it could be and you responded you know rather forcefully but politely with the line well i have an ego it's not humility that did that it was circumstance um and let's talk about that a little bit, because I think it's true for you. It's true for Rick. I do think it's in part due to humility, but I also think there's a lot more to it. And it seems like you agree. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I, my ego's about the work. Um, I have a very strong ego about the work. I used to, oh, I never wanted one word to change in any of my ads because I, because when you believe in something so much or when you pour your heart and your soul into it or when you've gone through three revisions and you're, you're pretty sure, I have a tremendous ego about the work, but I'm not well known in the business by my name. Um, and a lot of that has to do with a lot of the things that happen, you know, um, with the agency, a lot of the things, not with, with Dan and David, they were always giving props to everybody. One of the things that, they did for all of us at the agency was everybody got to present their own work. There were a lot of agencies where the work went to the big wig, you know, the big guy at the top and nobody ever knew who created it. Dan and David were 1000% uh, democratic socialists even. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, um, you know, th th there were things that happened early on with our client, with the work where, you know, when Oprah had read the ads and, and cried on TV and read them out loud, and then she wanted to have the entire women's fitness and sports team, because we were all female, on her show. And that was like the second year or something. We were out of our minds happy. We were all excited. We were all going to go. And Nike put the kibosh on it by telling us uh, that um, they didn't want to pinkify the brand. Um, a different word was used. Yeah, you five. told me the other word, and, but it's an even stronger and more derogatory version of pinkify. Let's say it is, and so it, those kinds of things um, uh, happened, and then also the fact that I think um, he, there were stronger personalities, bigger personalities, bigger voices um, in the creative department um and 
I don't know. I just, my ego was about the work and I wanted the work to speak for itself. And I know Charlotte did too. And I know that, you know, that happened with a lot of people at the agency. And I think, you know, it, it's also, Dan and David tried really hard to make it not a male culture and not a white male culture. And I, I've never worked anywhere as a freelancer or anyplace else in my life that was more inclusive and more diverse very early on, not because that's what they were seeking. They were seeking the very best talent, but they wanted different voices, other lives, other experiences. They were very, you know, David had come from Chicago, Dan was from Oregon. They wanted people from around the world. They, they had, they never ever treated, other than saying you're girls, they, right. there was no, we were never treated as our genders or our colors, our races, our creeds. I, I want to get that out there. It has always been an inclusive and independent agency. But that said, there were a lot of times when we we knew we were in a, a, a male culture, in a male business with male-dominated clients. I mean, that goes from Coca-Cola to Microsoft to Honda to, you know, Miller Highlight, it, it that was the way of the world. And to be honest with you, it is still the way of the world in mm -hmm. most places. And and um, you know, so Charlotte and I were fine to kind of take a back seat to being known as long as we just could be under the radar, much like Rick, and create the best work you possibly can and not have it be a, a cult of personality. Let's put it that way. In an agency, and sorry, in, a, in an industry of shameless self-promoters, I'm probably one of them. Uh, do you, in retrospect, regret that? Do you think had you stepped into the spotlight a little more to take credit that was absolutely due by orders of magnitude greater than a lot of credit taken for other things? Do you, if you could I change, do. You do. I do regret it. Yeah. I mean, like, I think I told you that I, I turned down the woman's law review when we did, if you let me play, which is the one thing I get more cards and letters and phone calls about and emails is if you let me play. Um, when the woman's law review called me and said they wanted me to come down to LA to accept an award. And I turned them down because I was so busy working and what else was going on in my life. I don't know. Maybe Maybe Rick had his uh, first cancer then. And I didn't go, and I and they were aghast. I mean, they were like, "But we're going to give you an award." Well, I still got the award, but they mailed it to me. You know, things like that, or, or not fighting to go on Oprah, or yeah, I, I do regret it. I, I think it, you know, in some ways, it hurt my career. Um, although I'm fortunate, I still I still have a career. I, you know, I still work. I I work every day, but. Um, yeah, I do, Jay. And and I I'm pretty sure Charlotte probably does too. Regret some things too. I I somebody said to me, she was oh, I know what it was. It was um a pro bono account for a, a dog rescue place. It's a great place. And she wrote me this email to thank me so much for whatever I'd done. And she said, Your egoless uh, leadership is so inspiring. And I gotta tell you, it cut like a knife. I it just I mean, she barely knows me. She was just absolutely lovely. And it was a compliment. 
But egoless leadership is just like, wow. And the compliment being that you're giving, you're empathetic, you support others in the team. But I don't think um, people who don't do what you do or I attempt to do for a living understand how much ego it takes to put one word on the paper, how much belief it takes to assume for a moment that anybody else in the world would give a shit about the thing that you're about to write. Like it's an act of ego. Virgo once said it's all ego and insecurity, to which you know I replied, I replied, well, for me it's all insecurity. And and on a good day, enough ego will break through that I can write something. And you know, right, exactly. I used to tell Rick all the time that the chair has nails on it, and I am not gonna sit down. I'm gonna clean the house, I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna go take the dogs for a walk because it was Dorothy Parker who said, I hate. Writing, no, yes, I do not like writing. I love having written. And that has been my, you know, I mean, most of us, that's our whole life. And the same thing goes for concepting. You know, I mean, it's a blank page, whether you're thinking of an idea or whether you're putting words on paper or whether you're art directing. It's, it's, it's it, but thank God it's still difficult. Thank God you still wake up and think, oh, my God, I don't want to. I think I, I, I'm not sure I can do this today. I have to write this thing for the hospital. I'm writing a TED talk for somebody and I um, I can't do it. I'm going to go go for a hike. I'm going to get out of here. But then you come back and the nails are still on the chair and you sit down and you think, well, I told him I'd do it. So I better do it. And, you know, it's like somebody mentioned the underarm ad that I was a writer on just recently the other day and um she she said to me she's kind of in the business you know and she said I was having a really crappy day and I was feeling lousy about myself and I just feeling so sorry for myself and I came home from work and I read I watched the ad about the refugee from on Under Armour that you did a few a couple years ago and she said I I, I started sobbing I started sobbing at the words and the visuals in this woman's life. And then I said, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Look what she had to go through. She's a rick. And I said, yeah, I said, it's, if you believe in something and, and you want to touch somebody else because you've been touched, then no matter what your art is, no matter what you do, you know, that, that you can find it for a split second that maybe you're, worthy and then you can do it right music well, painting the the level of empathy that you create there and i think you just um really exemplified the fact that when you write it's you writing and as, as people talk about dan's many superpowers one of them was convincing us all that our voice was the voice we should be writing and adapted to the brief sure uh, but but don't try to emulate Janet or any of the other, you know, great writers we were all surrounded by. Write what you think about that. Write who you are about that. And Nike, as a result, had many voices. It had Jimmy Smith's voice and your voice. Those are two really different voices. Throw Stacey Walls in or Jerry Cronin's in or any of the others. Those are really, really different humans. Uh, you know, Ned McNeil, Linda Knight, like all of these people are really unique individuals and they didn't adapt to the voice that was Nike. They wrote themselves. And, you know, I, I think 
for what it's worth, my opinion is that you are the absolute apex of that, that you have the ability just to tap what it means to be human, what it means to be a woman as a writer. And we're just all lucky that your medium is advertising in Nike. So we got to read it. No, thank you, Jay. Thank you. Well, you know, yeah, Dan always said, find your voice or find your voices. Um, but also, I think all those people that you mentioned and yourself, it's when we can find our voice and we channel somebody else. You know, it, it, it always feels like it's either channeling or it's a a translation that happens maybe. But also, don't just do, you know, just because I'm into, to, you know, to big type or I'm into, boy, I love Tarantino this, or you don't. Don't just do you for that client, you know, do dig in deep, do all the research, get to know them, go for a run. If you're doing an issue, drive the car, you know, get to um, whatever it is, get into it, really understand it and know it and then get rid of it and then let your voice come out because don't do the same thing over and over again is what I'm trying to say. Try to, you know, always bring something new because again, it's the conversations they're 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 speaking for a bigger truth hopefully you know and that's why i was when we did if you let me play that which came out of kind of nowhere it also came out of the fact that nike had killed the first two they wanted to do female athletes their female athletes weren't getting enough mm -hmm. attention but they also everybody thinks it was done for title nine but it it wasn't it was nike came to us it was scott uh, bedbury actually was the ad manager right then and Nike came to the agency and said, we haven't done anything big and powerful for the culture, you know, in like a year. We haven't done any, you know, um, I, you know, I am not a, a role model. We haven't done the women's fitness ads. We haven't done this. Or that. We need something really big. And in my memory, anyway, a bunch of people were working on it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was just us. They really wanted to do the female athletes. And so we did, I did something with Janet Jackson being, uh, Venus Blackman, Mars Blackman's sister, mm -hmm. um, which I loved. And, you know, they were like, yeah, that's good. But no, I would like to see that. I'm it glad they didn't buy fun. it. It was great. And then uh, but they were like, no, no, something bigger, something bigger. I was like, OK, so but all these reams and all this information on, on all the female athletes. And so reading it and looking at it, looking at it and lots of stats, lots of stats about, you know, the difference between team sports and single sports and everything. And. Then they killed the next campaign, whatever that was. And so something was due the next day. And I remember Rick was working late with Jerry. So I was working late at the office and I was, couldn't figure out I, I by myself. And I, so I started thinking, what are those stats again? I went into the room and I was looking through all these great, amazing statistics. And I thought, and it was all about the power, like the things that happen if you are a participant in team sports. And I thought, oh, that's it. So I, that's when I ran around the offices and sold all the photo books and started photocopying really badly pictures of little girls. And I spray mounted them because Rachel wasn't there. And I spray mounted them and I started just putting the statistics on the boards. And it was, you know, um, if you let me play sports, I'll be 25% more likely to leave a man who beats me. If you let me play sports, um, I, I will learn to like myself. You've let me play sports. Um, I will be less likely to get pregnant before I want to. I mean, just 
in true, incredible fact. Right. Pissing them all up. Our meeting was at nine. Rachel comes in the next morning and I'm running around with this really bad copy. And I said, could you make this look better? And she changes up some of the pictures to color. I, I, I had the boards till our house burnt down and they were lost. Uh. They were amazing, right? They were just, so we took it in there. Again, I'm, I'm really, it's our third time. I am absolutely convinced they're going to love it, but I know it's really out there. And I, and there's a rhythm to it. You know, you start less ballsy and then you get more so. So I'm starting to read it. There's a bunch of people. And I got done with it and I just put it down on the table and I just stared at them. And I don't know who said, I think it was Bedbury who said, well, um, that's not what we expected, which is what we asked for. So that's good. And I, they didn't say anything else. And it was like, they were just staring at us and they said, um, okay, well, um, yeah. So you have any directors in mind? Wow. And you know, what's crazy. It would never, that couldn't run. Today. Nobody would say those words on television. I, we had to fight for a couple of them and they let it, they let every single line in those original boards made it into the final cut. Uh, it unbelievable. And that is a story, the story of how one of the most durable, important ads of all time gets made. You can run it today. I think about that. I think that about many of your ads, frankly, that you could run them today. And sometimes when I see something that misses the mark a little bit, sorry. DJ and all Nike marketers today, I think, well, why don't they just run if you let me play? Or why don't they just run revolution? That would make me want to go for a run right now. I know, right? They could run a lot of the old work and it would just hold up so well. I mean, that's the thing about being pushed to do what you hope is maybe timeless or you hope maybe makes a big difference in society or in the world or something. Yeah, it'd be nice. They don't revisit things, you know, very often. So but no. there was so much good work that came out that, that could still see the light of day. I just don't know if society would allow those facts to be out. I don't know. It's funny you say that. I, I In my class at UCLA, um, one of the sections, it's not a section, it's one class, um, is in the, it's in the business school, and is is entirely dedicated to important ads socially and then we bifurcate them into those that could run today and those that could not run today whether that's the era of social media or society has changed or attitudes have changed um and you know coke like to buy the world of coke holds up um mm -hmm. not to call uh stacy wall or drew scott Heron, whose estate did allow the revolution will not be televised to be used. Um, of course they did, but there's no way you could run the revolution will not be televised with the voice of Gil Scott Heron today um, and right. not have that erupt into culture wars. And that's, yeah. by the way, that's because society has moved in the right direction, just so we're mm -hmm. very clear. But um, I do think... Uh, we I, I revisit a lot of the Nike work for the purpose of of drawing that distinction, and the vast majority of it, frankly, does hold up. And just because this is being recorded, DJ 
Van Hamren, I love 98% of the work that you're putting into the world right now. So it's like every time I see something, I think just run Janet's stuff. But occasionally, usually when it's not done by Wyden and Kennedy, I do think that. So there, I just need to say that for the record, Janet. Um, can we spend a little time recognizing we've spent a lot of time together, but I could do this for, for days. Um, I want to come back to one thing you said, which is that the the lack of notoriety or not seeking notoriety may have affected your career, because I think of you as someone who chose to then go have a life of freelance because nothing would ever live up to the time you had at Wyden and Kennedy. That's my idealized version of it. So maybe if we could use that as a jumping off point, but then whether it's stand up to cancer and, you know, I think the number one position. Um, but can you, you know, first talk about that negative effect that maybe not seeking notoriety may have had, but then let's move really quickly into the world changing work you've done while not carrying a Wyden and Kennedy business card. Uh, I, well, I just think, um, you know, I mean, there are times when I wish that, you know, maybe I or we had started an agency in Portland with some of our friends. You know, there's times when I wish that, you know, I had had when Dan didn't want me to quit and offered me some things. And, you know, like he he wanted Rick and I to go over to Amsterdam and be creative directors. And Rick really wanted to. But we had a wolf dog and I didn't want to take a wolf to Amsterdam. No offense to Amsterdam, but our wolf. Right. Plus, we were building a house here at the coast. So there were things with our lives that I didn't want to do that. But I I wish that I had, you know, said to him, make me a partner. I mean, it would never even have occurred to me, wow. you know, because he. I think because I knew that he would have done it. I was going to say, my instinct is my, my sense of it is he absolutely would have done it. Well, he would have. and and But I didn't want to have to ask for it, which, mm. I mean, makes no sense because it. But but it it did to me. It never occurred to him. Um, but talk to Susan. Like did like you know did Susan ask for it? Cut to Susan still there all these years later running the joint. Right. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I still get to work with Susan once in a while, which is fantastic mm -hmm. too. Um, so yeah. So but it didn't happen. And uh, on the other hand, Rick and I went. Yes, I, I never worked again full time at another agency. I, you know, I would I'd spend two or three months at different places like Goodby or working on Doug uh, Real Beauty. But again, you're a gunslinger, right? So you when you're freelance, you you don't get to say you did that Super Bowl ad or you you came up with big things because you're freelance. And they don't want people to know it came from outside. But that's okay. That's an egoless thing too, or that's an ego about the work. Well, you've but decided it's okay because there's a version of you yeah. that your name's on everything you did. And like I, I might just have to make that list and publish it somewhere. Yeah. You know, like when you work in a little town called Cupertino for six or seven years, Rick and I did for a, a fruit company, but you can't ever tell anybody or put anything on your, you know, because they don't like that. You just have to kind of go, oh, well, fine. I know. I know I did it. We know we did it. That's okay. We also made a conscious choice to build a house here at the Oregon coast and move here full time in 2003. And because the funny thing is we knew that there was such a thing as the internet and we could work long distance way before COVID. Everybody can work wherever they want. And also, so 
you know, that was part of the lifestyle plan was, um, and also we wanted to, if I could do nothing but pro bono, I would do nothing but pro bono. Um, but I got the windows cost money. So, you know, look beautiful. Oh, and by the way, Rick designed more than half of this house. Wow. Yeah. I mean, when he wasn't doing everything else, he was also an architect designer with our friend architect. So it's a big deal. This house is really a tribute to him. Um, but so, uh, what else did you ask me? I asked you to talk about the pro bono work, stand up to cancer being the top of it. But yeah, you know, it, was, that was, it was tied up in the what if. So yeah. let's drop the what if for a moment and and go with the you'd do pro bono full time if you could. Yeah. Well, what if was an amazing, wasn't that just a beautiful, gorgeous ad that was um, Jamie Barrett and Rick and Donna Pataro did that. And it was black and white. It was gorgeous. And um, that was so smart. Like, what if there, you know, what if there were no athletes? What if I wasn't? Yeah. What if there were when no you say that, I just meant what if you had been oh. stepped into the spotlight more? But of course, oh, yeah, there's yeah. a great Nike ad that Rick had something to do with that. That yeah. is what, what, what if. Well, yeah. And then like, because the pro bono is is where you're literally doing your heart and your soul, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know, your whole belief system is tied up into, the, you know, I will not work on McDonald's. I put my foot down at the agency. There were certain things I absolutely would not do. A lot of people did. You know, a lot of people would go in and say, we're not going to do a disposable diaper, Dan. And he'd think, oh, you're right. We can't do that. So, things like that. But when it comes to pro bono, it's it's the most important work. It's the, by far the hardest work. There's no money um, for anybody. But you can change the world. And for Santa to Cancer, what happened was Laura Ziskin was a force of nature. And it's one of the most powerful women in Hollywood who herself, we know, was a cancer survivor mm-hmm. until she wasn't. And Laura called one day and said, I hear you write manifestos. And, you know, I think I'd you know, like you to work with me as a creative director. And you find somebody else on the art side. And I have an idea. But I, so I went down there with with Rick and she had that name stand up to cancer, but she wasn't sure. So we worked on it for a while, wrote some things, art directed. He came up with a logo with a, mm. a wonderful designer. And we said, no, 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 we love it. We can, you know, we think it's fantastic. And that turned into us being the ECDs with her for like six years wow. and doing a mate. And again, Fincher stepped in, you know, foregoing all his fees um, for his whole crew. I mean, he got the crew paid out of his own pocket right. and did the very first ad for that. And then Eddie Vedder, you know, gave us his song for free. And and it was tremendous because what Laura wanted to do was no more silos. Everybody, everybody working on cancer has to talk to each other. Because what happens is, is somebody working on pancreatic uh, cancer finds out in a trial that it, it doesn't, oh, it, it really works for breast cancer. They don't talk to each other. Right. So if you don't talk to each other, how can you have any kind of breakthrough? So it was huge. The, the money that she raised off Santa to Cancer was, Jay, was unfounded, unbelievable. Billions and of dollars. And still is and continues. And it still continues. And, and Major League Baseball, you know, stepped in and supports that. So when you do work like that, even if people don't remember it, or even if people don't even notice it, I mean, we worked on leukemia and, and lymphoma. We worked on the World Wildlife Fund. We worked on everything. I mean, anything we can possibly get our hands into. Um, and the girl effect, you know, for the for the 
the United Nations um, that was pulled. And when Malala wrote me an email and asked me to write something for her, people like, that's incredible that you get the opportunity to do that. And um, you being you, I mean, you toss these things out, any one of which would be the career highlight for anyone who ever got to work in advertising. And, you know, I would suggest that you've very much earned and deserved the fact that you get to throw names like Malala out and Laura Ziskin out and all yes, I just I threw those out. And so, yeah. And so, Hey, what kind of notoriety do I need? You know, you have people like that reaching out to you. You're very fortunate. And um, I'm still working, like I said, and I am, I am grateful and I am happy. And um, I um and, and, you know, in, in every place I go and you know, Rick and I talked about this all the time, wherever we go in the world, if we run into Anybody that was ever at White and Kennedy is like running into your stepsister or your cousin. We have thousands, Jay, of of friends and relatives because of this opportunity that we were given and the trust we were given to create ads or to create entertainment. Yeah. And wherever we go in this world, you know, like like Fincher asked us to do the book of the making of Benjamin and Benjamin Button. And so, you know, we did that. You know, things like that that you get to do that are so cool, but, you know, never take them for granted because you, you never know when it's going to end or when it's going to dry up. And you just keep going forward every day best you can, right? Right. Well, it seems like maybe we're, we're winding up, but when I hear you say, well, maybe the notoriety or lack thereof was okay. And I land more on those who know, and there are a lot of us, know. They know that we're standing on the shoulders of giants and you are the giant of giants. Um, And I feel lucky to know you and I feel lucky that I know those things. And if nothing else comes of us doing Omid's podcast together, um, but a few more people knowing that if they pour themselves into the ad they're writing yesterday, today, or tomorrow, they get to do that in part because Janet Champ showed us the way. And I thank you for that. Thank you, Jay. That's so sweet. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much to my friend Jay Goodman and to Janet Champ for taking my Wyden Kennedy FOMO to new heights. Thank you, as always, to Andrew Feltenstein and Beacon Street Studios for producing this podcast. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague, subscribe, rate, review. And until we return with more great guests, peace. Let them clap for show. Let it wrap your resistance. May trap unknowns. Release for your heart. Speak ballads flowing.